Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, and of course, Toto, take a long trip to visit the wonderful wizard. And throughout the story, the wizard is presented as a powerful, mysterious, and amazing figure. But when the group reaches his throne room, they discover something else. When the curtain is pulled back, it turns out that the wizard is nothing more than a deceptive carnival barker who did everything by illusion. And when the group sees the wizard for who he really is, their sense of wonder, awe, and fear melts away. As it turns out, the supposedly wonderful wizard isn't any more wonderful than they are. Well, as we continue in the book of Ezekiel this morning, the prophet gets his own exclusive VIP look behind heaven's curtain. But what Ezekiel sees is not a trickster, a disappointment, or a fraud. He finds the one, true, glorious, holy God. What Ezekiel sees can hardly be put into words. But he does his best to describe it in a way that we can wrap our minds around. And if we had to sum up Ezekiel's vision, we might say that God is beyond, different from, and better than anything our finite minds can imagine. So open up to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have to worship you here in this place. Uh, Thank you that as I preach today, I get to hear the baptistry running behind me. Uh, That's usually a good thing. And so, Lord, thank you for the blessing of a baptism this morning, uh, not just for Cheyenne and her family, but just for our whole church, uh, that we got to witness that. Uh, And Lord, thank you that once again, we get to open your word. We get to learn from what you've written for the benefit of people long ago, but also for our benefit today. Uh, Your inspired word is still being given to us as we speak. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your word has to say. Uh, Lord, help us understand even just the beginning of how great you are so that we can respond appropriately in worship. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we discussed last week, God called Ezekiel to speak to God's people concerning God's judgment for sin. Some of the people had already been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, including Ezekiel himself. And that was bad enough. But then, over the next few years, things would get even worse. The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. The city itself would be ransacked. It would be a disaster of cataclysmic proportions. But before Ezekiel goes out to warn people of what's coming, 
he receives a vision of God. He gets a look behind the curtain. The first thing Ezekiel sees is a storm. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. Second, Ezekiel sees four bizarre, frightening, otherworldly creatures. They have human likenesses, but four faces. That of a man, lion, ox, and eagle. They have four wings and four hands each. Verses 5 through 9 tell us that their appearance was like burning coals of fire, torches, and lightning. The biblical term for these creatures is cherubim. One commentator describes them as God's bodyguard. But third, Ezekiel sees four wheels in verse 15. In the ancient world, wheels made you think of a chariot. And finally, Ezekiel sees a throne on top of the chariot. But the question is, whose throne is it? Chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel gets a peek at God's throne. There are a few others who had similar experiences in the Bible. Moses once asked to see God's glory. And so God placed him in the cleft of a rock for protection. But Moses only got to see God's back. The prophet Isaiah had a vision similar to Ezekiel's. And upon seeing God's throne, Isaiah proclaimed, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. The prophet Daniel is another example. He sees the Ancient of Days on his throne. And one like a son of man, given everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Moses had to take shelter. Isaiah didn't expect to live. Daniel describes himself as anxious and alarmed. Our friend Ezekiel falls on his face. A vision of God leaves you feeling overwhelmed. The weight and the sheer magnitude of his glory is simply too much to bear. But what's interesting and perhaps ominous about Ezekiel's vision compared to the others are those wheels that we talked about. It's that God's throne can move. 
That comes to bear in chapter 10 when God's glory leaves the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 10, starting in verse 15. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chebar Canal. That's back in chapter 1. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The temple had been King Solomon's. And by extension, King David's crowning achievement. When the temple first opened and God's glory filled it, the people celebrated. But now God's presence is gone. The temple, which God's people viewed as the center of the whole world, became just a building. Because without God's glory, a temple... Is just an empty shell. Now, what went so wrong? That goes back to what we discussed last week the people's sin. In chapter 36, God accuses his people of profaning his name with the way they lived. So he removed his presence from among them, he judged them. The people had proven themselves thoroughly uninterested in living in God's presence. So God did just about the worst thing he could do. He gave the people what they wanted. He left. God is holy. The word holy or holiness can have two main meanings. First, and most commonly, saying that God is holy speaks of his moral perfection. We mean that God is pure, that he is righteous, that he is untainted by sin in any shape, form, or fashion. But the second meaning of the word holy, and this is the one I want us to think most about today, gets at how God is so completely totally and utterly different from anything and everything in the created order. God is holy in the sense that he is perfect. But God is also holy in the sense that he is unlike anything that you or I can fully imagine. And if we got a glimpse at his throne, we too would be overwhelmed. Think back to that vision in chapter 1. The storm, the cherubim, the chariot, the throne, God's appearance like gleaming metal enclosed by fire, brighter and more colorful than a rainbow. That all sounds so strange, doesn't it? 
It sounds so foreign to our boring day-to-day experience. That's because it is strange. It's supposed to be strange. It all reminds us that God is not just a better version of us. He's not even the best thing that we can imagine. He is great beyond our wildest dreams. Our words can't fully do him justice. He is above our full comprehension. One word that's often used to describe God is transcendent. Now, transcendent is not a biblical word, but it can still be helpful to us. And a good passage to see God's transcendence is Isaiah chapter 40. Starting in verse 12, we won't have it on the screen. You can just listen to what Isaiah writes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 25 says again, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Theologian by the name of Augustine once said, If you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. In other words, if you think you have God figured out, you're not thinking about God. Another theologian named Anselm once wrote, describing God, As that than which it is impossible to think anything greater. That than which it is impossible to think anything greater. He also called him supreme and inaccessible light. And Thomas Aquinas said, The infinite cannot be contained in the finite. 
God exists infinitely, and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. If you're having to chew on that one, you're supposed to. Now, it's important to note that God's transcendence doesn't mean that we can't know anything about him. We're not saying that God is so far off and so remote that we're clueless or agnostic about who he is. But we do need God's help to understand him. Thankfully, he reveals himself to us in ways that we can wrap our minds around. He makes himself known to us in ways that we can grasp, like an adult teaching a child. He reveals himself through the world that he's made, through the word he's written, and of course, through the son that he sent. There's a lot that we can know about God by his grace. But there's also a healthy sense of mystery when it comes to God. There's a place for us to humbly recognize that we can't figure God out. That shouldn't drive us to throw up our hands and give up on knowing anything about God. Rather, it should lead us to a greater appreciation for what we do know about God and a response of awe, reverence, and worship. God's holiness was surely part of why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They sinned and thus thwarted their access to this unfathomable God who we read about. At one time, this God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. But after they fell, they were banished from his presence. And if you're a student of scripture, you may remember that God sets cherubim, those frightening creatures we read about in Ezekiel 1. They serve as the guards to the way back into the Garden of Eden. But before Adam and Eve left, God indicated that it wouldn't be this way forever. One day, an offspring of the woman would punish the serpent who led humanity astray and bring us back into his presence. And that person is none other than Jesus. Ezekiel recognizes the hope of reconciliation with God as well. In chapter 43, he has a vision of the temple being rebuilt and God's glory returning. But in a way, the whole city becomes a temple. In chapter 48, God seems to dwell not only in a certain building, but just about everywhere you look. And in the final verse of his book, Ezekiel learns what the new name of that city will be. The name of the city is simply, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Like we said earlier, that's what makes a temple a temple. The presence of this unimaginably glorious God with his people. At the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that once and for all, this was God's plan all along. 
In chapter 4, John has a vision of God's throne that is remarkably similar to Ezekiel's. There's lightning, thunder, fire, and even those scary-looking cherubim. And those cherubim constantly announce, they constantly sing, that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. And in chapter 21, we see God dwelling with his people once again. Verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Might remind you of Ezekiel's last verse. The Lord is there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And the key to all of this is seen in Revelation 21, 22 through 27. It's Jesus, the Lamb. That's how sinful people like us can return to God's glorious presence once and for all. So if you want to see something like what Ezekiel saw, if you want to take a look behind the curtain and get just a taste of how majestic God really is, look to Jesus. He himself is this glorious God in all his fullness in human form. It's by faith in who Jesus is and what he has done his life, his death, his resurrection, that sinners like us can be forgiven, adopted, and welcomed into God's holy presence once again. And in that day, we'll get more than just a peek behind the curtain. We will dwell with God forever. We won't just catch a glance. We'll see God on his throne in all his fullness And sing with those cherubim, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Now this is all fascinating. At least I think it is. But what does this high-minded theology have to do with our everyday lives? Well, a few thoughts. First, I would tell you to simply behold your God. Behold your God. Some sermons just challenge you to think about how great God is. And that's what this sermon is about. Theologian Paul Helm calls this sort of study of God, this sort of thinking about God as a prelude to worship. In other words, reading what we've read about God today ought to drive us to praise him. It's great to know something in our heads about just how awesome God is. It's fun to learn fancy new words like transcendent 
but it shouldn't stay there. Getting a glimpse of just how great God is ought to drive us to our knees in worship. Second, know that you, yes, you, were intricately and intentionally made by this awesome God. You were designed to glorify and enjoy him forever. This incredible God made you in his image. And how dignifying is that? You are not just a product of biology, a product of chance. You were made by the unfathomably amazing God that we read about in the book of Ezekiel. Think about that. Third, look forward to being in God's presence. One day you will get an even better look at God than Ezekiel did in the chapters we read this morning. Thanks to who Jesus is and what he has done, one day you will see God in all of his glory. Remember that right now because our lives right now aren't always very glorious. But it won't be like this forever. Press on in faith. Knowing what awaits you, don't forget what you have to look forward to. And finally, live before God's face right now. Maybe you've heard the old saying, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. In other words, start acting now like the person you want to be in the future. Well, one day you will be in God's holy presence. You will be singing, holy, holy, holy. So why not start doing it now? Why not start living like it now? The Apostle Peter, knowing what glory lies ahead of us, asks this question. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness now you will be perfectly holy one day in god's presence why not start striving for holiness today storms cherubim chariots thrones either there was something in the water at the chebar canal to make ezekiel see this stuff or god really is just that breathtaking I think it's the second. He is transcendent. He is totally different from anything we can imagine in the best possible way. He creates out of nothing. Speaks from burning bushes that don't seem to burn. Executes perfect judgment while also showing perfect grace. Uses a cross to redeem sinners rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, and one day will come in the clouds with power and glory as king and judge. The nations are like dust. He can weigh the mountains in scales. His appearance is brighter than a rainbow. Who can we compare him to? The answer is no one. And this stunning, transcendent God, in all his wonder, loves you and welcomes you into his throne room 
by faith in Jesus Christ. He invites you not just to take a peek behind the curtain, but has made a way for you to dwell in his presence forever. And when you see him, you will not be disappointed. You will learn that he really is as wonderful as he said he is. And then some. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that puts your glory into language that we can begin to understand. Thank you that your spirit inspired your word. And so if there are any words that can do you justice, it's these. And so, Lord, I pray that we would spend time just thinking and meditating on how awesome you are. I pray that we would be consistently blown away by the accounts that we read in Scripture of your greatness, of your power, of your might, of your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that would drive us to worship. I pray it would drive us to humility and joy in thinking that you, of all people, in all your greatness, love people like us in all of our smallness. Thank you for your grace in that. And Lord, I pray that we would live holy lives now, knowing what we have to look forward to, knowing what you have secured for us through Jesus' body and blood. Help us live holy lives now to give people a taste of who you are, to prepare ourselves for eternity in your presence, singing your praises. Help us live holy lives right now, Lord. Thank you that you truly are the just judge, like we talked about last week. And Lord, thank you that you are holy, that you are different and better than anything we can imagine in the best possible ways. We praise you, Lord. We love you. We revere you. And we ask this all in Christ's name.